Ontology, the Waystation of Red-Pilled Sanity Written by William Leo Translated by Deep L and a Human Read for you by Ginny, Arya and Guy All Bots The Reshaping of the World Order After the First World War Part 3 in such chaos, believing that the time was ripe to overthrow the rule of the entire European bourgeoisie through a revolutionary war, the Soviet Union fostered a series of Soviet states, such as Bavaria and Hungary. According to our Chinese textbooks, what happened in these countries were Soviet revolutions, but as far as the British were concerned, they were actually a small number of foreign subversive forces sponsored by Soviet rubles and armed by the Soviet weapons, to carry out destructive actions locally, much like the later Guangzhou riots. Members of these riot groups were mostly foreigners or local gangsters. After grabbing the power, they first massacred the so-called bourgeois before using terrorism to establish Soviet-style rule. Their behavior provoked general opposition from various European countries so much so that even the former Social Democrats in those countries, who originally called themselves socialist, carried out large-scale party purging throughout the 1920s. Now our Chinese readers often regard Northern Europe as a model of moderate leftist and pink leftist nations. In fact, the entire 1920s witnessed the most relentless party purges by Social Democrats in Finland and Sweden. The purpose of those purges was to wipe out all Bolsheviks in the parties and Soviet subversives in the countries. To achieve that, instead of the nowadays lawful methods, street gang fighting and brutal persecutions were commonly used. A well-organized and fully functioning police force did not yet exist then. It is fair to say that in the Kingdom of Sweden in the 19th century there was only the royal army, not a decent police force. They were incapable of dealing with the large-scale Soviet Union-organized subversive activities. The meager police force was outnumbered by the subversives and agitators instigated by the Soviet Union who used violence and assassination in peaceful communities, planted bombs at the gates of bourgeois citizens, kidnapped their wives and children, and carried out terrorist operations such as murdering the whole household in the middle of the night. They were doing what Islamic terrorists are doing today. Because of terrorist attacks, local funds and elites were forced to flee, communities collapsed, and then revolutionary conditions were created. Under those circumstances then and there, without the existence of a regular and well-trained police force, either you sent the army to the streets to suppress riots, or you had to act as Swedish Social Democratic Party did, organizing your own workers' pickets, waving clubs to smash the Bolshevik units, using violence and terrorism to expel or kill local infiltrators. Both Sweden and Finland used this method to stabilize the domestic political situation which also established the long-term central role of the social democratic parties of Sweden and Finland in the political structure of the countries. Therefore, the Soviet Union harbored deep grudges and burning hatred for the Finnish Social Democratic Party similar to the Chinese Communist Party's animosity towards the Chinese Nationalist Party. Therefore, the Soviets would rather let the Conservative Party and the Peasant Party be in power and firmly oppose the Social Democratic Party. If you look at it from a purely left-right political perspective, the Conservative Party, 
the peasant party, and the central party were right or centrist parties, while the Social Democratic Party was a moderate leftist party, and the Soviet Union should at least support the more left parties. But in fact, the Soviet Union would rather allow right and center parties to be in power than the Social Democratic Party. It is because, in the bloodshed of the 1920s, the Finnish Social Democratic Party carried out brutal actions that almost resulted in the physical elimination of the Bolsheviks. The cruel actions left the Soviets with long-term grudges and hostility. In fact, the same is true in China. From the perspective of Chinese logic, the Nationalist Party was a relatively left-centered party. Compared to the Northern Warlords and Liang Qichao's parties, the Nationalist Party was a bit more on the left. But the Nationalist Party also applied the similar party purging to the communist infiltrators in the same period of time, so was born the irreconcilable feud between the two. For the Soviet Union, its subversive efforts were carried out through two-front warfare. One waned and the other waxed. In the early 1920s, Europe was its main target. By the late 1920s, with the above-mentioned strong countermeasures I just mentioned, its European strivings largely failed. After that, its subversive focus shifted to the east, with countries such as China, Indonesia, and Japan as the primary target and China in particular as the top priority. This strategic shift was self-explanatory if one followed the capital flow of the Communist International. Most of the funds were reserved for China. Specific account-keeping shows what a large amount that was. For instance, during the so-called National Revolution in the 1920s, the Soviet Union's aid to the warlord Fong Yusyan alone stood at minimal 40 million pieces of silver per year. The Soviet Union's funding of the Communist Party of the United States during the Cold War was at most several million dollars a year. Moreover, the U.S. dollar has been depreciating. The several million dollars for the Communist Party of the United States in the 1980s may only be worth several hundred thousand or even only several ten thousand dollars in the 1920s and 30s. You will be able to tell the priority Soviet Union treated China with after the failure of its European subversive activities in the late 1920s. It paid the hefty price, letting Ukrainian farmers starve to death in order to save money to support China's pro-Soviet warlords and the Nationalist Party and the Communist Party. The Communist International raised the Chinese Nationalist Party and the Chinese Communist Party by feeding them with flesh cut off from its own body. Here, the Nationalist Party does not refer to the one in the early parliamentary era, but the one after the National Revolution in 1911. The excruciating pain of this sacrifice can only be compared with China's aid to Vietnam in the 1960s. At that time, China assisted Vietnam, and China's own People's Liberation Army used outdated weapons from the 1950s. All the newly produced ones, except for a few specimens, were sent to the Vietnam battlefield to fight the United States. The ammunition warehouses were emptied only to assist the Vietnamese guerrillas in their fight against the Americans. In the 1920s and 1930s, the Soviets starved their own nationals and did all that they could to assist the Chinese nationalist and communist parties. Other countries, such as Britain, France, or other old-school capitalist countries, although they also provided foreign aid, you can rest assured that their foreign aid was with limits, that is, 
they wouldn't provide assistance to the point of letting their own citizens starve for the sake of foreigners. Our history textbooks accuse imperialism of interference in China and claim the China revolutionary expelled imperialists. In fact, the opposite was true. The imperialists, including Britain, Japan, and the United States, in particular, were responsible for very little interference in China and as little aid. The real large-scale interference in China's internal affairs and the subversion of the original relatively legitimate Beijing government through the subversive forces within China, that is, the nationalist and the communist parties and warlords such as Feng Yuxiang and Xing Shitsai were basically single-handedly handled by the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was unilaterally aggressively meddling in China, while the other foreign powers did not intervene directly. The reason was also quite straightforward. After World War I, due to the breakdown of the European international system, the great powers lost both potency and interest in secondary regions such as the Far East. Like the United States, who was of course still very interested in Europe, but not so much in the Middle East. If asked to actively intervene in the civil war in Iraq or Afghanistan, to suppress local extremists, it would value the lives of American soldiers above all and feel that these places were not strategically important enough to justify it. But if anything went wrong in Europe, the US would not be able to sit still. It was the same with the British. If something went wrong in Europe, Britain itself would be affected, but in a secondary region like the Far East, it didn't matter whether anyone subverts or interferes, they will stand by and let it be. Japan adopted a similar policy during Prime Minister Kajuro Shidehara's administration. However, Japan's stake in Asia was much greater. Therefore, after the fall of Shidehara, the Japanese military and radical forces strongly condemned the international coordinationism of the 1920s. They believe that it was precisely because of Japan's passive inaction policy in the Asian continent during Shidehara's tenure that it led to the downfall of the Beiyang warlord government and pro-Japanese forces, as well as the victory of the Nationalist Party and the Communist Party. From the Japanese point of view, the Nationalist Party functioned in essence as the white gloves for the Soviet Union. The Nationalist Party was incapable of purging the Bolshevik infiltrators, while the Communist Party was openly acting as the agent of the Bolsheviks. The Nationalist Party as white gloves for the Soviets can be compared with Fatah in the eyes of the Israelis. Israel believes that whether Fatah or the Lebanese government, they are the white gloves of Hezbollah and Iranians, controlled by Iran. In the final analysis, these forces put up a deceptive facade for the international community, ultimately to subvert Israel. During the northern expedition, Shidehara missed the best window of opportunity to intervene and suppress the national revolution, which paved the way for the birth of the Nanjing government, who after the success of the revolution took back concessions ruled by foreign powers, annulled various treaties, impaired the treaty system, which greatly favored the Soviet regime and seriously undermined the foreign powers, especially the vested interests of Japan in China. Only then did the Japanese turn around and began to take actions that led to the occurrences of incidents such as the Manchurian incident and the Tongu agreement. But from the Japanese perspective, the golden opportunity had already passed them by. One should put out the flame before it flares up into a bonfire. 
Now Japan's reaction took place only after the seed of disaster had taken root. It was simply too late. They should have acted decisively in the 1920s. Because of this misjudgment, the pro Anglo American faction and the Shidehara forces lost power in Japan in the 1930s. They couldn't prove that they were right. And the reality had proven without dispute that they wasted the golden opportunity. Thank you for listening. This is a podcast series produced by Luminous Society. Luminous Society provides you with an alternative historical narrative.